0: Thank you, thank you, very much. <laughs> thank you I'd like to extend a warm welcome to everyone here, and, uh, and a big thank you. And uh, before I say a single word, I have to say, I heard you say Colin once, and Colin the other time. And it was very interesting, last night, I was sitting next to his niece, and she also calls him Uncle Colin, evidently that is what the family calls him, that's his name, and there's a long, involved story. Uh, into how he's called uh, Colin today. But he said it's in both of his books. So <laughs> it's a pitch to, uh, I guess, uh, sell, his, uh, sell his books. Um, in any case, I'm, I'm thrilled to see some familiar faces here. Former students from the Art Students League and from long ago at the Art Students League. <laughs> Great to see you. Uh, friends, uh, we have some terrific, our best friends from Hong Kong came all the way to uh, be with us last night for the unveiling. Gabrielle and Peter Churchhouse. And uh, family, I have, you know, many family members here, so uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, this is strictly an informal talk, okay? I didn't write anything, I didn't practice anything, I figured it's my painting, I should be able to say something about it, you know? So uh, uh, I was told that we would have a sort of a question and answer at the end, but if you feel there's something that you want to ask along the way, uh, feel free, okay? Jump right in. And uh Allison? <laughs> Except <for> me, right? <laughs> my, my niece Allison. Don't make me laugh. All right? Unless I get really dull, then you can cough a little bit or something to, you know. <laughs> no, yeah, and if you all start coughing, I'm in big trouble. So, okay, that's where I'm going to begin. I I received an email from Brandon Fortune, who passed by just a little while ago. Brandon is the curator here at the uh, National Portrait Gallery. And Brandon sent me an email back in, I believe it was January of uh, 2010. And basically she asked me, are you still living in Hong Kong? Are you still alive? Are you, can you still hold the brush? All that sort of stuff. And, and then the next thing I noticed in her email was, are, uh, are you interested in painting uh, a commission for the National Portrait Gallery of General Colin Powell? And I got no further than that. And I, you know, said to myself, yes, of course, I'm interested. And uh, the other thing that I noticed that was very important to me at the time was that she said General Colin Powell, you know, because people had known him as Secretary of State. And I have to say, right then and there, before I ever even finished the email, I was putting together a picture in my head. I was trying to actually visualize a finished painting in a frame and... Uh, also, uh, believe it or not, in this particular spot as well, because I had a long story, but uh, I had a feeling it would end up uh, here in this uh, particular spot in this hall. So uh, strangely enough, several years, this is already two years later, the picture is very, very close to what I had envisioned that day before I even finished that email, you know, and in part because, you know, I, again, I try to come up with the, uh, the image in my head, and then I probably steer every uh, aspect of the portrait uh, toward that, toward that goal. So uh, that was the beginning of it, getting the uh, email, and uh, to go from there, the next thing was to ask whether General Powell would be interested in posing in his uniform, you know, because Let's face it, uh, he had been a retired uh, general, he had not put the uniform on for 17 years and I have a great story about that when I met him. He had not put the uniform on in 17 years and uh, he was totally up for the idea. He said absolutely you know, because uh, this is the way he wanted to be remembered. On, a, on another note, before I get into the uniform, I have to say I had a chance to come by and visit the gallery. and. Just, uh, I was in Washington, actually, for two commissions at the same time. I was here to paint uh, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy at the Supreme Court and Colin Powell. So I had sittings in the morning with one and sittings with the other in the afternoon. Yuka, you don't have to take notes. What are you doing? Are <laughs> <laughs> you drawing? Are you sketching me? Uh-oh. Um, where was I? So, so uh when I came by the gallery, uh, I remember there was a an enormous, enormous portrait here by an artist named oof, I'm trying to think of his name, uh, Kehinde Wiley, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Uh, and uh, it was of the rap star LL Cool J. Am I right? Right. Yeah. And it was enormous. It's a it's really a very dramatic painting, and I was. Uh, Sort of bowled over by the really the scale of it and how striking it was when I first walked in. So, the first thing that came to my mind was in terms of painting Colin Powell, um, did I want to do him, you know, as, as a head and shoulders, a three quarters, a full length? The gallery left it up to me. Well, in looking at that painting of LL Cool J, I thought anyone who visited the gallery and didn't know much about American history, would have looked at that painting and thought he was the most important American who ever lived, you know? (laughs) So uh, right away, ruled out doing a smaller portrait of him. And uh, again, the the National Portrait Gallery literally left it up to me as to what size uh, I could do uh, for this uh, portrait. So anyway, uh, that's when correspondence started between uh, General Powell's principal assistant, a wonderful lady named uh, Peggy Sofrino. And Brandon and myself, and we uh, were back and forth on just logistics uh, for posing uh, in June of that year. I came to the states for those sittings, and I had i think three sittings with general Powell uh, that that first summer. He posed again the following summer, and they were in his office in Alexandria, Virginia he um, He also made arrangements for me to visit the Pentagon, Joint Base, uh, Meyer Henderson Hall, I believe it's called, uh, Fort McNair, the National Defense University, and the National War College to get an idea for something I might want to use in the background. So actually, just before I met him, I visited all of those places. And Brandon went along with me. She was great. She was a chauffeur and and, uh, helped me with uh, so many things. But that was very interesting as well to see, you know, the chairman's uh, chairman, of the Joint Chief of Staff's office in the Pentagon, the chairman's residence at um, Joint Base Meyer henderson Hall, and uh, the National uh, War College at uh, Fort McNair. Again, you know, like when I first visualized this, I thought to myself, this is a picture that you know I, it has to represent. Um, a man in a very powerful position, someone who's really strong. And uh, obviously, to do him in a, a flower garden or against a, you know, on a reclining sofa or something like that, it's just, it's not going to happen. So I, I kind of visualized uh, a background like this. And again, I kind of steered myself towards it. I was looking for something like this when I was visiting each of these places. When I went to the Pentagon, the chairman's, uh, chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff's office had completely changed for the new chairman. So it didn't resemble what it was like. It was in the same location, but it didn't resemble what it was like when he was there. There was nothing in the uh, chairman's residence that I thought would make for an interesting background. So again, I gathered all of this stuff. And I remember um, after my sitting with him that day, coming back to New York on the train, on the Usela Express, and making dozens of small scribbles with the columns in the background, and uh, that's when I decided that I was I was going to paint that. So again, you know, I, I I'd barely seen him five months before that. You know, when I got the email, I had already made a decision that pretty much how I was going to uh, paint the picture. Um, the uh, the background. When I got back to my studio in New York, I made a number of uh, small sketches where I would print a photograph that I had of him. And I would literally just paint a background in on it to see how it felt. And this painting was uh, eventually cut down. It was larger than this. But when I f- the very, very first uh, uh, couple days that I worked on it, it was a different look to the background altogether. It, in fact, on the early sketches I did, it showed much, much more of the building. The building was smaller, and you could see it sort of go off in the distance, and there was even a little patch of sky. But as I worked on that a little bit more, I thought it just wasn't... Uh, um, it, it, it all looked sort of tiny and kind of unbelievable behind him it didn't have the strength that I wanted so eventually I, I regaged that and enlarged the whole background against him um, let me go back to the sittings for a second when he was posing for me obviously this is, uh, this is not the uh, as he said last night this was not the 18th or 19th century people don't have a great deal of time to pose I live in Hong Kong so much of the time that I spent with him was spent photographing him. And it was, uh, it was a great experience. He showed up at his office the first day. He, he drove to the office in his uniform. And again, I hadn't met him yet. And it was very funny because we were in Peggy's office, Brandon, Peggy, and I were in his office talking. And all of a sudden we see this arm pop around the doorway, just the arm, and the sleeve is up like this. And he shortly, you know, we all started laughing. And then shortly he follows it around. And he says, you know, when you hang clothes in the closet for 20 years, they have a tendency to shrink. You know? <laughs> Again, he hadn't put the uniform on in that long. And uh, I'll get to another story about that that's very funny. because he And he told this last night. He had the entire uniform on, but he had a pair of Italian loafers. And I knew I wanted to paint him, you know, probably full length. So I asked him to wear his uh, Army shoes the next day, which are patent leather shoes. So he brought them, and we knew something was wrong right away. As he was sitting down, they were the heels and the soles were marking the, the floor, the rug in his, in his office, turning everything black. And he said, oh, something's wrong here. I don't know. when he finally stood up in them, the soles and heels just crushed down like he'd stepped into chocolate or something like that, it just totally disintegrated and, and broke up. And so, you know, we did our best to sort of continue for a little while like that. But by the minute, they disintegrated even more until even though they were tied, they popped open and he was able to just walk out of them. (laughs) So it was just hysterical, you know, army issue shoes. And uh, so when he posed actually the next summer, uh, and I'll tell you why in a little while, when he posed next summer, he actually had to go to the PX and get a new pair of shoes. So... um, so, as I said, I spent a great deal of time uh, photographing him in all different poses, all different lights. Again, most of them concentrating on a standing pose. Uh, I knew I did not want to do him in a seated pose. And I, again, I, I asked him, you know, uh, you know, how do you, how do you normally stand? Obviously, you know, if you say to somebody, do you ever stand like this? And they say no, then obviously you, you rule it out. But um, I... I photographed him uh, a great deal and then I did a couple sketches from life in his office. Very very quick sketches. I try to do that for absolutely every single painting that I do. I think there is maybe one painting that I can remember where I did not have the opportunity to sketch from life. Anything. I don't care if it's a scribble. Anything from life helps me a great deal in putting together the portrait. So. The first sketch was something that just gave me general proportions for the entire figure. And it was, uh, again, probably a five, ten minute sketch. The second portrait, however, was actually uh, in exactly this pose, exactly this pose with his hands like this and facing the side. I had done a little bit more to the head and shoulders and just barely indicated his arms and his hands. But that came in so handy uh, to me later on, and he was very funny because, you know, after 25 minutes, he like, let me see that thing, and he sort of <laughs> grabs me. And, but again, that was a, a, a very rewarding moment for me because as he looked at the sketch, he just lit up. I could see he, he liked it right away, and he said he, he did, so I, I knew I was on the right track. Later, when I was in Hong Kong, and I actually stretched the canvas and started the painting, Somehow I had changed my mind and decided that it should be a formal, a really formal portrait of him. So I'm going to talk about some of the changes I made to this thing along the way. It was, it was almost a nightmarish uh, uh, process from beginning to end because it started out he was facing the side even more, a little bit like this. He had one hand at his side and his feet were together. And again, it was to give that sort of, you know, soldier, you know, stiff kind of soldier look that I thought would really be a great way to go about it. Well, I had some doubts within the first couple months. In fact, Peter and Gabrielle who are great friends of ours from Hong Kong, had a chance to see this almost from beginning to end, right? You saw it how many times? Half a dozen times? And um, just changes all along the way. But I, I felt little by little that it was not him, that it wasn't the man that I remembered in the office, you know, because there's a certain warmth to him. He's a a very approachable man, and uh, he stands like this all the time. He was doing it last night, right, while he was here. So I decided I was going to change it, and luckily I had taken many, many uh, photographs of him, and I had this one sketch that I had done. So little by little, I started to make changes. I would sand out areas of the painting, the difficulty for me is I didn't make them all at the same time. I, I changed the one arm, I brought up the hands, and I brought his shoulders around a little bit more. I brought his head around a little bit more. Everything kept getting sanded out. I would lose the legs, then I would lose the arm, then I would lose the head. Then I, at one point, it's like he had no real legs or no real arm or no real head. It was just vanishing. And the same thing with the background. I made changes to that. And as I was saying last night, over the course of nearly 18 months for this, I got to a point, I would say, maybe, maybe 12, 13 months into it, that I thought I had lost it. I didn't know whether I could even recover this. And uh, it was because, um, again, I, I almost lost my ability to figure out where to start. And I was saying last night, my son made some comments to me that were very funny, but it it gave me a focus to go back to the head and start with just that and then sort of work out from there and that helped a tremendous tremendous amount i you know if once I caught his expression the way I wanted, the way I remembered it in his office, uh, then everything else sort of seemed to fall into place. Um, probably the last thing I did on it was it down. It was larger than the frame right now. It was a bigger uh, picture, and thank God I cut it down because it would never have gone out of our place in Hong Kong. Um, <laughs> I put the stretchers together there, so in, inside, so it would not have made it out of the uh, out of the place. But uh, I cut it down to sort of enlarge him within the composition and make him stand out as more important. I didn't want the background to draw more attention than the figure. Um, let me think. Can
1: you talk about his expression a little bit?
0: Well, uh, yeah. I, in fact, I have a funny story about that. He, One of the things he asked me when I was in his office the first time was or one of the things he insisted upon, I should say, was that he wanted it to look like him, which is a strange thing. I've never had anyone say that to me, Uh, but he said he wanted it to look like him, resemble him. And he had uh, referred to a number of portraits that had been painted of him in in various uh, places. He's been painted uh, before, and there are also bronze uh, sculptures done of him. And he wanted me to take a look at some of them. And I was surprised that except for one or two, there were very few that had a likeness that actually captured his his likeness. And I thought how odd, you know, ordinarily, you know, as Sargent used to say, you know, there's a touch of the caricature in, in every portrait, or every great portrait has a touch of the caricature. I thought to myself, you know, when you think of him, he has very distinctive characteristics that he should be an easy person to get a likeness of. You know, I'm talking about a likeness even before the expression. So. One of the things that surprised me when I was working on this was that I too struggled to get a likeness on this, and I've had that happen once or twice in my entire career, and I was dumbfounded. And it took me months of you know like trying to figure out what in the world was going on before I think I may have you know figured it out, but I'm, I'm guess- guessing at this as well. I read an article uh, several years back in a science magazine, I, I, I see I don't subscribe to art magazines, I, I, get, I used to get science magazines, but I was reading an article that dealt with memory. It had nothing to do with art, but it was about memory. And it was saying that people have a tendency to remember someone else, they sort of make note of their resemblance by their hair first, and then their forehead up, and this plays a much you know smaller role. Did you cough? Are you <laughs> coughing? Ready? <laughs> um, so, uh, so they have a tendency to recognize this first. In other words, when you look out in a crowd, you can almost identify in a in silhouette. If you took a silhouette of this crowd and you looked at it, you could probably go around the room and, and figure out who's who just from seeing it from here up.
1: Gilbert so Stewart said, you know, he said it was the nose, you know, really not like the muzzle.
0: Right. Right. Well, uh, interestingly, in this science article that had nothing to do with art, again, they were saying that, for instance, if you took a photograph of Mao Zedong and you attached his forehead and hair, or lack of hair, to, say, Richard Nixon's face, and you looked at it for a fraction of a second, you would instantly recognize uh, the photo or identify the photo as Mao Zedong. You know? And if you did the reverse... You know, if you put Richard Nixon's uh, from here up on it. So what, uh, make, to make this you know, short story long, <laughs> uh, when I was working on this, I noticed uh, or I, I realized much later that although this part of his face really hadn't changed much at all, what did change was I had made slight changes in the shape of his head and the values or the dark and light of his hair You know, in part because, you know, he's, again, he he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, in the mid-90s, I guess it was, right? 17 years before, so in 1995. And his hair was darker at the time. He had a slightly thinner look to his face. Uh, But the main thing was that changed the shape of the top of his head as well as that coloration of his hair. And so, at one point, and this is no joke, at one point, the face was exactly what it is now, but the hair was lighter, the hair was lighter because, you know, I know his hair is lighter now, and the shape of the head was maybe just a little bit wider, and it didn't look like him. It was absolutely mind-boggling and frustrating for me. I couldn't figure it out. And as I said, I've I've thought about it for months and, and come up with that as a possible answer, but... As far as the expression, I um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, because that's a, an interesting question. The, when I uh, I learned to paint from life, and I painted from life for many many years, and in fact I remember I had a number of years ago a sitting with a uh, sitting a meeting with um, Barbara Walters who had come over to talk about having her portrait done. And again, this was a long time ago, and. I had a wonderful meeting with her. We talked for the longest time, and it sounded like a go, and she wanted also a, a life-size, full-length, you know, really involved portrait with a gold leaf background or something. And uh, it was a great meeting. And at the end, she said to me something about, it, was it okay to bring her uh, makeup crew to the photo shoot? And I looked at her and I said, uh, what photo shoot? I said, I, I don't work from photos. I, I had never worked from a photo in my life. And so she said, she said, well, what does that mean? I said, it means you probably have to give me about 30 to 40 sittings, uh, three hours at a clip. And she said, I, you know, I, I can give you one, maybe two, <laughs> you know? And I was dumbfounded. So obviously it never happened because I didn't know how to work from photographs. I had to teach myself, like all of us do, who paint, how to do it, but I had never done it before. You know, obviously, I didn't get the commission. Um, when I did this, I, over the years, I, I have learned to use them, um, and although there's a lot of controversy about using them, obviously someone like Colin Powell, they don't have a whole lot of time to pose for you, right? So. I can stand there and I can scribble from life, or I can make a quick oil sketch, but how much is that going to help me put together a painting of this size? It's not going to give me the information that I need, okay? I find working from photos to be far more difficult than working from life. The reason is you have much less information. Uh, the information that you do have is, has inherent distortions in it for a painter. I know you're a photographer, but... <laughs> <laughs> For, for a painter, there are always inherent distortions in perspective, in color, everything's off uh, slightly. So I realized early on that some of the paintings that were done using photographic reference were done in the late 19th century, or mid to late 19th century, when, photo- when photography was in its infancy. When photos were black and white, they were out of focus, and the artists had a great training in working from life. They were able to pick and choose what they needed from those photos to supplement, to supplement the, um, the information in their paintings. That's, in general, that's not what's done today. You have people, many people, who do not really learn to paint from life and they take a photo and basically just copy it and enlarge it. Well, what I want to say to you here, and this all has to do with expression, so sorry for the long-winded uh, thing. What this all has to do with is that and my wife can attest to this I would say I would say, though I take you know all these photographs and I have photographic reference and I print the photographs, I would say that 70 percent of the time, I have no reference material in front of me. I work strictly from memory. I don't touch them. And as, again, as she can say, she can walk into the room five out of seven days of the week and I'm there with. Nothing, just working on a painting, just pushing paint around. The reason I do it is because I'm aware of the inherent distortions and lacking informa- lack of information in the photos. So I may just say, take a day and say to myself, well, the head's not solid. I've got to you know, work on creating a, a greater sense of form. And I know certain elements that are necessary to be in a painting to to do that You know, uh, many ways of of doing that of accentuating the form and that's what I'll work for I may lose a literal likeness It it may not look like Colin Powell for a little while and there may be other problems with edges and God knows what but I may get another piece of it that I want and so little by little I may take the photograph bring it out for another day and go back toward that sort of literal feel you know, to get kind of a literal feel uh, for, for the model. But a good portion of this uh, is literally just from my imagination. And I remember having a teacher early on in my uh, student days who used to tell me, for instance, if I was painting a step like this, he would say, don't make it a step. Make it a painting of a step. You know, and I, that has always stayed with me. You know, I, although I could probably stand there and, you know, render... The texture to make it look exactly like the stone, you have to think to yourself, what's important in the painting? You know If you want someone to look up there first, you, know, is it necessary to make this all look just like that? So um, again, a lot of this is, is painting that happens up here and not with a brush. So getting back to the expression. <laughs> Sorry. Getting back to the expression, I knew when he was posing for me you know uh, just by looking at him he had this way of like sort of raising his eyebrows like that and and uh, it caught my attention every time. I don't have any eyebrows so I can't do a good impression (laughs) but uh, he would sort of like pull up his eyebrow like that and I and this sort of highlight hid in his eye and just that look every time he would turn I'd ask him a question he'd turn to me like that I knew that's what I had to try to uh, get in the painting so it was, for me, potluck. I mean, I just literally pushed paint around, changing edges, changing lighting, um, hundreds of times until I actually get the feel. You know, Again, it's, it's not the likeness, it's the feel. It has to feel like him. And when I see it, I, I recognize it. Um, there was a great Italian uh, 20th century portrait painter named Pietro Annigoni, and Anagone did, uh, he, he wrote a, a, a wonderful um, autobiography. And in that autobiography, there's a section where he talks about the third person in the painting. And when I read this, it was all so familiar to me. I, I, have you ever read any of that or you know, are you familiar with his work? Anagone, A-N-N-I-G-O-N-I. He did the famous portrait of Queen Elizabeth when she was quite young. Just an extraordinary, extraordinary talent one of my heroes in, uh, in art. But he wrote this, uh, this, uh, this thing about the third person in the painting. And third person meant you have, you have the, s- the sitter or the subject of the picture, you have the artist, and then you have that image on canvas, which can sort of take on a life of its own. And what he, w- what he was referring to is that at different stages of the painting, and he was, again, he's talking about his own work, at different stages of the painting, and surprisingly this can be from the beginning and it can happen throughout different stages. It's as if the person literally comes to life. Where you know, you walk past it and it's as if the head just turned to look at you or the eye just, you know, winked at you or something, but you can feel the person there. It's it's almost it's enough to send a chill up your spine when you see it. You know, in every great great painting, you would love that to be there because if you feel it, someone else will feel it in your, in your painting. And I always, you know, uh, it, it, it takes my breath away when I see it, you know, in my own paintings because, you know, I can feel the person there and that's what I'm striving for. And it can vanish just as easily at the end of the painting. So as I said, in the end of the painting where I'd like to see it, like to be able to see it, it doesn't happen on all of them. It really doesn't happen on all of them. I'm, I'm lucky if 50% have that quality at the end, but it, uh, again, to me, that's what it's all about. You know, looking at, looking at the uh, the painting and trying to uh, trying to get that feel. So, um, I don't. Uh, is this going on too long for everybody? Because I can. All uh, right, huh? uh, anybody want to ask another question? You
1: Summing up the observer,
0: he's a general. He's looking at the troops are the person who's speaking with them and making a decision about them. Someone, uh, someone made a comment to me when I had just finished it that he had this look of, I've got you in my sights, you know, like gun sights or something like that. And I guess that's that's the man. You know. The only thing I question, yeah. uh, having spent six years in the Reserves, you always have your, have your hat on outdoors. Hat on outdoors. That's right. I, you know, I, I... I think a general would be the same. I checked with him on all the protocol, and he was like sort of, he was uh, sort of uh, of the mind, uh, make it what I you want, general. you know. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, that he didn't feel, you know, I, I, as I said, I, I started out with a more formal look of him because I thought that was the way to go, you know, as a, as a military man. But I kept thinking, you know, this this is him, he just did this all the time. Not in the sense that it was really at ease, where he, you know, you know, was like this, but just sort of a gentle kind of, you know, pose like this. And so that's what I strove for in the picture. Um,
1: Brian, I think that all the pentamento there is not wasted because it animates it. You know, it looks, he almost has a pyramidal form to him. And well, it gives an energy and emotion and
0: a little bit of a halo. And the other thing that's interesting excellent. too is does everybody understand what she 's saying by that the, the pentimenti that pentimenti means the changes in other words if if I take like the edge of the of the uh, uh, leg here and I decide it 's got to come out a little bit, so maybe I indicate it with another stroke like that to make it a little bit wider, those changes show indecision on the part of the artist and there 's a lot of value in that, especially in this day and age where you have painters that um, well, not all of them, obviously, but uh, you have painters that enlarge a photograph, sort of like by tracing an outline, and then just, you know, it's like uh, coloring it in, you know, uh, by, by number. It just goes up, and it doesn't show those changes. So the changes themselves actually add to the value of the picture, I guess, it's I suppose. An energy. I mean. The
1: other thing I think was challenging for this was, Because you're looking up at him, you know,
0: know, I know I spent that couple of years looking up. By the way, Bernice was one of my most talented students years and years ago at the league.
1: (laughs) Still painting with Aaron Schickler. Um, Are you? Yeah, I am. But, um, you know, what's challenging here is he's a little larger than life here. You know, the painting of George Bush, which I adore upstairs, that you have, is a little more life size. But this one is larger than life. So when you go larger than life, you can get a little. little monstrous looking. You have to be careful. You know, it can look monumental and imposing or it can look a little grotesque. And I think the other piece is the top of the head. Because you're looking up at it, you probably had to make it a little larger than when you were looking at it. Very. But, so it doesn't look like a microcephalic. Yes,
0: that's a, that's a very... It's a microcephalic. Well, you know. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm one. <laughs> no, you're not. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, uh, she has a, an excellent point there. And it has to do, the size of this actually has to do with, you never really know what the final resting place of the portrait may be. This is actually a very tight space. This is a small corridor, right? And the painting is just barely off the floor. We were in the National Gallery the other day, right? And how many Van Dykes did we see or, you know, uh, enormous portraits where, you know, the bottom of the portrait is this high off the ground in an enormous, enormous room? Well, if it should end up in a spot like that, which is probably more um, suited to a, a portrait this size, then, uh, then it will look even better. So what I try to do is imagine what's best for you know, the life of a portrait like this. You know, uh, um, I certainly didn't want to do him under life size because then they start to look like a toy soldier. right? Mm-hmm. Even life size, even just 100% life size, in a big space looks under life size. Many of Sargent's paintings, even though they are technically life size, you get at a great distance from them and the heads look very tiny. So I I didn't want that. And, uh, And also again, you never know what situation the painting's gonna hang in in terms of if this were tipped forward. Again, you'd have a different feel for it. Last night at the unveiling, I was a little upset because it was actually tipped back. So people who were sitting down in the audience, right, Looking up at it, again, it made the head look a little smaller. So, you know, I I try my best to take all that into account when I'm painting the picture to come up with something that I think would work in in almost every situation, you know. And uh, (laughs) I'm having a Rick Perry moment here. What? (laughs) What? Um, that's a tough question, Lois. I mean, I mean they, they told me here that I had to uh, speak quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm supposed to keep this brief because the world is supposed to end soon, right? Yeah. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, well, that's a tough question. Let me take an easier one first. have to say?
1: Well, he actually,
0: since I live in Hong Kong, uh, obviously I had to send him a photograph for approval. And so I sent it to Peggy, his, uh, his assistant. And he was away at the time. So I heard back from Peggy first. And in many instances, it's the people that surround uh, the, the uh, sitters in the paintings that are most important because they know, they know them so well. So Peggy got back to me right away saying she just couldn't believe it, that it was him, that, uh, you know, it was his lips. It was his, you know, look in his eye. It was his, and he always stands like, so I knew, you know, I felt like I was on the right track. When he saw it, when he saw a photo of it, he basically listened to everyone around him, you know, go on and on about it. And he goes, you know, he was just going, yeah, 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 I like it. He's a military man, you know, I mean... Uh, but he was he actually saw the finished painting last night for the first time he he did not want to see it until last night he wanted to see it you know uh, with everyone around and so he did not make a special trip here to see it by himself he he wanted it to be a surprise oh. for him and his entire family so so it was
1: a very positive reaction Oh yes
0: okay. oh yes wow. he was he was but thrilled was Ron a couple Yeah of
1: technical things i see just three quick things yeah. see so you had time to
0: get it varnished No no, it's, not it's not varnished. It is not varnished, no. Wow, oh, okay. That okay. Well, I'll, I'll explain that to you. The, um, years ago, I had a painting that I had done of someone, and uh, I never varnished them. Technically, you cannot apply a varnish for at least a year um, if you can wait. And, and actually, it's more complex than that because it depends what you've used as a painting medium as well. But if you wait at least a year, or two years, or five years, or ten years, all the better. And the reason is that the oil paint, after a period of about a year, begins to uh, polymerize and become insoluble. So that if you put on varnish on top, that varnish later on, if it discolors, if it darkens or yellows, can be removed, and the restorer will know where that varnish stops and where the painting begins. You know, it's not easy to take it away. If instead, can everybody hear me? I'm sorry, I'm going to horse here. Um, if instead, let's say you worked on this for six months and, uh, and you varnished it right away, the varnish and the, pe- the paint, the oil and the paint would fuse. And so when they, when it, if it had to be cleaned later on, there's a very good chance they could remove especially delicate uh, surface layers of say glazes or scumbles. I mean, you, you probably know there's a very famous story about the Mona Lisa. Um, it's. I'm sure it's just a story, but it's a good one. But supposedly, uh, Edgar, uh, Edgar Degas, and a group of his uh, pupils petitioned the uh, the Louvre over the cleaning of, of the Mona Lisa, in, uh, in the late 1800s, and um, the uh, museum went ahead and did it anyway. And supposedly, this is when she lost her eyebrows, and it's because. Uh, da Vinci had put on hundreds of glazes on that picture, very, very thin layers. And by overcleaning it, it was easy to remove those layers. And the reason I say that is if you add varnish into your, into your medium, the varnish remains uh, soluble. And so that's actually a, a big problem. Uh, I know many artists add, uh, say, Damar varnish or something to their painting mediums, and it's trouble. That began, that technique of adding varnish to mediums, began, I believe, in the 18th century to duplicate the yellowed and antique look of earlier works. You know, so it was put in there on purpose to make them look old. And most people don't realize that today. They figure, oh, you know, they want that kind of shiny uh, varnished look from it. And that was not the origin of it. If you put in that much varnish into the medium, hoping that it will stay like that then you're in trouble Uh, it it will definitely yellow and darken so so what I've done is and again probably 20, over 20 years ago 25 maybe I remember I had a painting and I saw it uh, four or five years after I'd done it and it was a woman in a very dark dress and it had sunken in so much you couldn't see the painting and I was devastated. I thought, you know, here's a painting that obviously needed to be varnished, but if, if the client isn't going to get it varnished, basically you've got a pretty bad looking you know, piece of work hanging around. So I started actually at the end of the painting, giving it a relatively heavy coat of the medium that I use. And I found that I can practically put it on like a polyurethane, and it dries, and it doesn't yellow appreciably at all. It doesn't really change, and this tap, 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 will dry and become completely insoluble to, so that after a year or two, no matter what they do on top, it, it won't hurt it. But the thing is, there's only, the only reason really for varnishing, the main reason is not protection, it's for aesthetic purposes. And it's done most of the time when the paint sinks in and it, you know, it, doesn't, it becomes unsightly. So if there's no reason to put the varnish on, who knows? Then maybe this can be dry for 25 years, 30 years before it's even considered. So, so. the
1: medium?
0: Oh, that's a secret. <laughs> that's, that's extra cash. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, the medium is a mixture of stand oil, which is a polymerized linseed oil. Right? It's actually linseed oil that they heat up to a temp- temperature of about 450-some degrees, and they hold it at that temperature for a long time, 18 hours or so. And then uh, it changes its uh, its properties entirely. It becomes actually a very slow drying medium, very thick, uh, uh, heavy oil. But stand oil, of all of the drying oils, is the one that yellows the least over a period of time. Okay? So I take stand oil, and I mix it with nearly an equal part of liquin, of uh, Winsor-Newton liquin. Liquin is an alkyd resin, and it is uh, it's strictly to help the drying process because the stand oil would take months to dry by itself. Uh, so I mix it with an equal part of uh, liquid and then I take that and I thin that uh, down considerably more in the beginning with a terpenoid or a turpentine substitute. And then as I continue the painting, working lean to fat, then uh, I, I cut down a little bit on the extra terpenoid as I go along. So, I'm sorry, Lois, getting back to your question, ask it again.
1: <laughs> I was curious, you, you talk often about the difference between paintings and photographs. Right. And I think that's one of the
0: topics that we bring. Be more specific then. about <laughs> that, how, how the painting really becomes a build-up over time, an amalgamation over time. Oh, oh, oh or right, Or your right. interaction oh, oh. with consider okay. versus yes. photograph. Yes, all right. Thank you. That's a. <laughs> is that enough of
1: an introduction? Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, what she's referring to is, and actually, uh, I'll make a comparison here of uh, working from a photograph and working from life. But if you're working from a photograph, right? Again, the difficulty is not just that you're working from a two-dimensional photograph, you know, and you have to try to read the, what it's like as three-dimensional, but it's taken. Uh, and it represents just a moment in time, a fraction of a second in time. You know, it can be very, very dramatic, but, you know, it... uh, And it can resemble the person or or look exactly like the person. It's very literal. But it's very different from working from life, where, let's say, if I were painting you, Ellen, right? And you came to the studio, and you're sitting there one day, and it's a nice, bright, light day, and you're you're well-rested, you've slept well, and you've just had your hair done, and everything and I start the painting, I capture a certain element or certain elements from your personality that day and then the next day you come back, maybe your hair's down over your forehead a little bit more and uh, the lights completely different, it's a much cooler day you, maybe you're sad, maybe something's gone wrong and the way down, you, you know, you're frowning. What eventually happens is over a period of many sittings, the painting becomes a synthesis of you, uh, of different elements put together and in a way, it was never you. In other words, you know, little bits and pieces put together, but nothing like that literal quality from the photograph. Again, going back to what we were saying before, or what if we were saying, or what I was saying before, was um, in the end of the painting, that's what helps to get the feel of the picture. Even if it doesn't look exactly like the person, the way a photo may, you can sort of look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's him, it feels like him. So one of the great advantages in working from life. And again, that's another reason, I'm glad you brought it up, uh, that's another reason that I spend so much time working without the reference material. I don't want to see it because I may push paint around just looking for that expression. You know, the slightest tilt to the mouth can, you know, uh, change entirely the feeling or the, uh, the expression on the person. Oh, a very famous line of Richard Avedon, uh, you know, uh, there is no such thing as uh, inaccuracy in photographs. Every photograph is accurate. None of them is the truth. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we done? Is there, is there one more question? A- any more questions? It has to do with I have a question. Why are there no drinks or, <laughs> no, hors <laughs> d'oeuvres? No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. It has to do with the physical aspect of painting. Mm-hmm.
1: You moving up and down, or is the canvas
0: moving up and down? Both. Like you paint up both. both. Uh, I had the canvas setting at different heights, uh, and I would do everything from lie down on the floor to look at it, and get up on a ladder. Uh, actually, you did bring up one other good point. That, can I just answer? You, you brought one of a very, very good point, point. Uh, and probably one of the most difficult things to deal with in painting a picture this size. You're trying to control the drawing, say, of the head, right? Well, from down here, it looks one way. Now, you get up on the ladder, and you try to paint it, and you're looking at it straight on, you have a totally different look, right? Now, Now, all of a sudden, everything you do up there, at that height, where you're trying to correct it, you step down and all looks crazy again, the perspective looks off. So what I would find myself doing uh, quite a bit, and another good use of photography actually, was to photograph it constantly and try to see how those proportions were working. I could tell right away if I was making the head a little too long or thin or a little too wide and it went back and forth just because of that. So not, not an easy thing to deal with in a painting this size. It's a great thing if you have an enormous, enormous studio to paint pictures this size. That's why you can look at Van Dyck's and uh, Velasco's that were painted in these enormous palaces. These guys were used to painting them for these, uh, these grand spaces. And, uh, and they were able to deal with uh, those difficulties in proportion because of that. In a smaller space, far more difficult. Far more difficult. I many times, you know, I had to paint this literally on its side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I thought of
1: yeah. Inventing a little bench
0: that would go up. Oh, it'd be great. I just Versus the yes. Yeah. They they actually they actually yeah. did have things in, um, in in Europe during the 18th century, uh, 19th century where you know they were very elaborate sort of platforms that you could yeah, yeah do just that. Did you
1: paint this in? Uh, artificial light knowing it was going to go be seen in artificial light so the colors would read the
0: same. I didn't do it on purpose. I have a wonderful studio in New York, and in Hong Kong I don't have a, a grand studio. So I, um, I, it was a combination of whatever light came into the room as well as artificial light, yeah. occasionally track lights. But I do that uh, anyway. And even in my studio in New York, I have wonderful north skylight, but I still look at them with artificial light because it's very rare that a picture ever leaves a Northlight studio and then is hung in a uh, situation where a it's, it's seen studio. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, right. Can I ask a question? Yes?
1: Um, I guess I'll ask the politics question. Since you're painting so many public figures, people that the public already has idea about, are you interested in like confirming their reputations or subverting them or is that something you
0: think about? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> the world is going to end uh, sometimes <laughs> i need, I, need, I need wine, not tea <laughs> No, i 'm kidding uh, that 's a tough question i uh, I try to keep my personal politics out of it in in general um, in this particular case. I have to say, you know General Powell is somebody who i 've admired really for for years i 'm a big fan of his, and as I think a lot of people are he 's a man who has crossed barriers and and is has a universal appeal really that does happen from time to time but I don't try to do that I try to give the person the benefit of the doubt and let history judge him not me so I I, I don't get into that my my thing is to create like a visual uh, record of the person and again I if it's a president of a college or or, or any other place again it's a it's a it's a role that they're in, and they deserve a certain amount of respect for it. And I I try to give it give it to them. Okay. Well, I, I should say thank you for thank you. everyone. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Great to see everybody.
1: <laughs>